Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 104, Lancaster and the Battle of Alborosh. Last time, a period of uneasy peace had descended on England and France. And I know exactly what you're thinking. This is when the two nations search for peace and have honest and open discussions about their differences. Well, you're half right in your thoughts. There were indeed peace discussions, but sadly everyone thought they had about as much chance of finding peace as they did of finding Elvis. To misquote, Edward hoped for war and prepared for war. It didn't help that it was the Pope who was acting as the honest broker. Clearly I don't want to go OD on similes, but as far as the English were concerned, the Pope was as much use in mediation as the proverbial chocolate teapot. It was quite clear who the Pope favoured. He was French, France was the leading nation of Christendom, and Philip was his friend. Philip himself also rather smugly acknowledged the same thing when he said that the Pope was, quote, my own friend, you know. In Pope Clement's view, England was incapable of winning this war. It was quite inconceivable that England should meet the power of France on the battlefield and win. This bias had produced practical problems for Edward. So, for example, arranging marriage alliances. It was pretty much impossible for the heads of most European states, dukedoms or counties, to marry each other, because they were all within the church's five degrees of relationship. So it was absolutely normal for the Pope to be asked and to give dispensation to marry. It happened all the time. It was just a rubber stamping exercise. However, when asked for the necessary dispensation for Edward's daughter to marry the Duke of Brabant, the Pope refused, and then coolly agreed when the French king asked for the same dispensation. 
and in this way the Duke of Brabant moved into the French sphere of influence and out of Edward's. Unsurprisingly, Edward was thoroughly irritated by this, and so at this time there starts a quite vicious war of words between Edward and the Pope. The Pope had the right to make appointments to vacant ecclesiastical benefices. The idea was to give the income of a church post to maintain a poor priest or maintain a church official or something like that. In fact, the system was widely abused wherever you looked, and the rich and powerful used it as a source of patronage, giving jobs to their best buddies who were perfectly well off anyway and held several of these kind of posts. What really bugged the English was that the Pope was making these appointments and abusing the system to benefit Italian and French churchmen. So an Italian churchman living in Avignon was being given the revenue from a vacant post in England. As far as Edward was concerned, if anyone was going to abuse the English church, it should be him. The war of words became pretty heated, so much so that the messenger used to deliver one of Edward's letters feared for his very life. Edward in 1343 entered a statute which prevented the Pope making these appointments in England. Edward was then accused by Clement of being an oppressor of the church and of being in rebellion. Edward was officially off the papal Christmas card list. While 1344 was a year of diplomatic war of words with the Pope, at home it was a year of administrative improvement and the kind of hoolies for which Edward is famous. On the administration side, much was due to the appointment of a man called William Eddington to be Treasurer of England. By and large, Eddington appears to have been a dull man, which is probably a prerequisite for being a Treasurer of England. And you are probably then wondering, David, why are you telling us about a dull man? Well, because people like Edward needed dull, focused career men who just made everything work better. And such was Eddington. His entry in the Dictionary of National Biography gets the point over with vicious objectivity. So, the will he left after his death, wrote the author R.G. Davis, is the meticulous but depressingly soulless summation of someone with a career instead of a life. And the summary of the man was that Eddington had very sharp talents, but a narrow range, with little evidence of broader intellectual or cultural imagination. But there is room in our pages, dear listeners, for the more ordinary, who allowed the likes of Edward to wander around eating bonbons and having a riotous time. Sir Eddington lasted as treasurer for a remarkably long period of time. In 1356, he would become chancellor, until he'd had enough and gave it all up in 1363. When I say ordinary, there was of course nothing ordinary about his rewards, since he became Bishop of Winchester in 1344, traditionally the second richest diocese in Europe after that of Milan. In 1344 then, Edward and Eddington had England's second hack at a gold currency. You might remember that Edward III had given it a shot and failed miserably, as with so much else he'd tried to do. But Edward introduced a thing called the gold noble, The tricky thing about a gold currency was to get the valuation right, and this took a few tries, but essentially there was now in circulation an English gold coin, proudly displaying the English king ruling the waves, all part of Edward's international propaganda campaign. This is Edward, presenting himself as an international figure and conqueror, victor over the French at Sloys. Someone to be reckoned with. 
In the days before printing, the coinage was the one truly broadcast media, one good way of telling the world how you would like to be seen. There is a certain amount of messing around with England's silver coinage through the period, but the different approaches in England and France is quite remarkable and worth discussing. So the aim as far as currency was concerned in England appeared always to have a stable currency that helped trade and prevented the king from being beaten up in Parliament. So between 1344 and 51, Eddington and in fact all of Europe faced the scarcity of silver bullion which made maintaining the standard very difficult. But total devaluation of the currency over the period caused by making pennies lighter with less silver but the same face value was about 20%. But then after this, no further devaluations were made until 1412 in England. But in France, it was practically a national sport. Devaluation was a major source of revenue, and with increasing frequency and desperation, the French kings reissued their coinage and devalued, making enormous profits each time, sometimes as much as 40% in a single hit. The way it worked was that you had all your people bring in their coins. So say they brought in a coin worth one sou, they then left with a coin that had exactly the same face value. But it would only have 60% of the silver content of the previous coin. Eddington pretty successfully also managed to get the royal finances back on an even keel. The concept of being the paymaster for foreign wars would have to wait a few more centuries, Edward now realised. England simply wasn't rich enough to pay for places like Brabant and the Emperor to make war on the French. Now the tradition is that Edward simply reneged on his debts and that's how he got the royal finances back into trim. There is some truth in this, but it really isn't as black and white as this. In fact, many of his allies received a substantial percentage of the agreed payment and much of Edward's debts were in fact paid off in full. There's also great play traditionally made about Edward causing the collapse of the Italian banking houses at this time. But in fact, it appears that probably only £13,000 worth of debt was outstanding to the Bardi and the Peruzzi when they went under. So in the main, it's because of the reforms and good management that gets Edward's finances back on keel. And meanwhile, you'll be glad to hear that the great crown of England was brought back. Eddington made other changes that really are just too dull to go into. The methods of bookkeeping, effectiveness of working between household and exchequer, the professionalism of the civil service. Dull, these may be, but they re-established confidence in royal finances. Edward, of course, whiled away his time in the traditional manner of kings while all this was going on, hunting, hanging out at court with lots of brightly dressed men and women, jousting, you know the form, he did like a party. In 1343, Edward's son was granted the title of Prince of Wales, a coronet placed on his head, ring put on his finger, and a silver rod pressed into his palm. In January 1344, there was great excitement at a particularly big hoolie thrown at Windsor, with reams of earls and countesses, including, incidentally, Edward's mother Isabella. And then loads of foreign knights, and Edward's son, now 13, was given a prominent role in the whole thing. As the slightly disapproving chronicler related, Dances were not lacking between the lords and ladies, embraces and kisses alternately intermingling. 
In the evening, Edward told them there'd be a big announcement. And the following day he announced that he was going to build a glorious round table in the spirit of Arthur and build a magnificent round building at Windsor to house it. In fact, as it happens, this really never gets off the ground and you have to wonder why. Ian Mortimer's explanation here seems plausible. During the jousting, William Montague, the Earl of Salisbury, Edward's closest confidant and sharer of Nottingham Tunnels, was badly injured. He was taken home, but eight days later he died and was buried at Bisson Priory. For Edward, this was a big and a personal loss. It took him a while to start running tournaments again. Now, you might think that a truce meant there was no fighting. This would be touchingly naive. In Brittany, Charles of Blois stoutly maintained that his fight had nothing to do with the truce, but was a local dispute. Although John Montford was finally released by Philip, it was done in the most stringent terms, and so he simply had to go back to his estates on the Ile de France and chill. In his absence, with the exception of one success, namely the declaration of the town of Vannes for Montford, his cause essentially fell to bits. Charles of Blois took a succession of towns and the Montfortists disintegrated into a bunch of bandits, looting and pillaging to keep themselves alive and becoming even more unpopular than Charles's army. Eventually, in 1345, John Montford did flee from France, but by September the same year he died. By that time, Montfortist Brittany was essentially a few towns, Brest, Hennebon, Vannes and a few others, and the English cause looked to be in ruins. In the southwest, there was less obvious fighting, but still plenty of banditry and flare-ups, but the general picture was unchanged. There was a change of leadership. The English Seneschal Ingham was recalled and replaced. On the French side, Philip promoted his son and heir, Jean, the Duke of Normandy, to lead the French effort. Jean was given title to all the lands recently reconquered by the French in the southwest. However, the conditions had been laid for the history of Gascon violence and lawlessness that would dominate life in the southwest for decades. The Gascons were to become a byword for violence that would spread like a disease to poison the lives of millions of people. The war encouraged a large population of landless and rootless fighting men for whom truces were irrelevant and inconvenient and for whom allegiance to any particular captain or to the French or English side was merely a flag of convenience. As an example of these men and their lives, let us take the life of one Monsieur Foucault. In 1337, we first hear of Foucault when at 14 or 15 years of age he got involved in a village feud and killed an antagonist in a fight. At this point, the French were overrunning the area he lived in, so he fled to an English garrison and was hired as a soldier. He spent his time burning and pillaging local French-held villages. But in 1340, his feud resurfaced, and he was attacked by two men, both of whom he killed. The Seneschal just wanted rid of him, so he let him go free as long as he left his area, and we next see Foucault in a small private armband band recapturing Bourg. Sadly, this didn't make him the money he'd expected, and after a brief spell of being tortured by the garrison commander, he was back again, carrying out long-range raids in French Saintonge. In 1345, for some reason, the French managed to capture him and dragged him off to Paris. He was tortured again and confessed to another raid on a priory. 
And so, at the age of 23, after a short, miserable and violent life, Foucault was beheaded at Paris. Foucault's story, and those of many like him, was a consequence of years of continual warfare. Their lawlessness meant that the area was never genuinely at peace. Meanwhile, the general attitudes towards the war in England and France were very different. In England, public finances were coming under control, which helped a generally positive atmosphere amongst the higher social orders. There was now widespread acceptance that the war was inevitable and just, and even glamorous. There was also an emerging group of knights who looked forward to war as an excellent opportunity to make a future for themselves. The war encouraged a wave of xenophobia and anti-French feeling. The chivalric element of each society did retain some sense of shared values, but outside of that, this war was creating a greater sense of division between France and England than had ever happened before. Edward did his best to fan the flames, Captured documents from Philip describing French plans to invade England were laid before Parliament. French merchants who had recently come into the country were presumed to be agents and arrested. Popular literature is full of hysterical accusations against the French. In France, in this regard, it was all much the same. The government associated the English with their bogeyman, Robert of Artois. They circulated John Lebel's daft claims about Edward's rape of the Countess of Salisbury. Merchants and aliens were removed or had to justify themselves. But outside of this, attitudes were very different. Although we know that Edward had achieved absolutely zip in his invasions of the north of France, and as much as Philip's tactics had in fact been very canny and effective, that was not the way that the chivalry of France read it. As far as they were concerned... A bunch of barely literate, hairy barbarians from somewhere wet called England had invaded the greatest nation on earth and got away with it. These earlier campaigns built a reputation for military prowess for Edward, but seriously damaged the prestige of the French crown, which put pressure on Philip to fight next time around. Philip's own behaviour didn't help this. His circle of advisers was very narrow. There was a sense of growing paranoia that spread out from the centre from the attitude spread by Philip's queen, Joan the Lame, who, although undoubtedly energetic, was described by Foissart as a vindictive woman laden with hatred, to a savage and paranoid response from the French crown to any signs of treachery. One example was Olivier de Clisson, who chose this moment to switch allegiance to Edward. Clisson was seized in Paris, dragged on a hurdle to Les Halles, and beheaded in the marketplace. His head was sent to Nantes and nailed above the main gate. His wife was banished. Clisson's treachery, actually, was not alone. A whole pile of French nobility was waking up to the idea that Edward's claim to be King of France was a lovely opportunity to add legitimacy to rebellion and access support for that rebellion from the English. Now, Philip could at least claim that people like Clisson had stepped over the feudal line but other stories lay bare the extent of Philip's panic. Such as, for example, the Parisian merchant, who airily declared over the supper table after a good glass of wine and a fine supper that he would rather be ruled well by an English king than badly by a French one. Instead of ignoring this as it deserves, he was denounced and brutally executed. Everywhere was fear, distrust and rumour. 
Edward was quite clearly planning for war and saw the truce simply as an opportunity to rebuild his finances and plan for war. His worry was that the longer he left it, the worse his military situation became, particularly in Brittany. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. He was encouraged in his planning by the rebellion of one Godfrey of Harcourt, a Norman noble who offered to bring a bunch of Norman allies to help Edward. And so a plan was hatched to send two armies early in the summer of 1345 and repudiate the treaty a year early, before the military situation got any worse. The king himself would go to northern France, and a smaller army would go to Gascony under the command of Henry of Gromel, the Earl of Derby. And at some point a third army was added to the plans. William Bohun, the Earl of Northampton, was appointed the king's lieutenant in Brittany. So, duly, in June 1345, Edward formally renounced the truce with a series of wordy denunciations of French transgressions against the truce, which Pope Clement, this time with complete justification, it has to be said, described as an act of undiluted hypocrisy. Meanwhile, the Earl of Derby had already left. One of the big features of Edward's glory years are the captains that surround him. One of the reasons for his success is a flush of talented warriors who are masters of battle tactics. I'm going to introduce you to a couple of them today as the war gets underway again. We're going to start with a man of far too many names, Henry of Gromel, Henry of Lancaster, the Earl of Derby, the Earl of Lancaster, whatever. He is in fact the son of Henry the Old Earl of Lancaster, the antagonist of Isabella and Mortimer, who by this time is old and blind and just about to die. So from here on in, we're going to call Henry of Gromont Lancaster, although it's really a year or two early, and damn the consequences, OK? Now your Lancaster is the pick of the bunch, a diplomat and military leader of great talent. Edward was never shy of great tactical warriors, but Lancaster stood head and shoulders above the rest with his wider strategic vision and the range of his talents and success. We know more than normal about Lancaster because of a devotional book that he wrote himself in later life, called The Book of Holy Medicine, in which he gives more than the odd revelation about his inner thoughts and desires. His approach in the book is penitential. He's telling us of the sickness of his character, which actually just sounds as though he's had a lot of fun. But it's not just Lancaster's writing we rely on. The chroniclers themselves are all fulsome in their praise. We don't hear much of him before the 1340s, although there is an interesting wrinkle that Edward III gave him £500 because his father had not yet set him up in the state that he should have done. It seems more than likely that Edward and Lancaster, who were of similar age, were already close. And indeed, he's one of the men Edward recognised at the Parliament of 1337. But Lancaster led the early naval raid with Walter Manny to Cadsand in 1337, he was with Edward in the campaigns of 38 and 39. He was at Sloys 
and conducted negotiations with the French and worked as a diplomat in Castile. Lancaster is still a young man of 35 as he stands on the edge of his campaign to southern France, but has plenty of experience in more ways than one. He's the original golden youth, tall, blonde and slender. He clearly loved the courtly life. He talks about his love of women. He reveals that the women of the court smell better, but ordinary women make better kisses, using the verb busy, which then as now could equally mean sex, and you have to guess means just that. He owns up to the fact that he revelled in his good looks and attracting admirers. He owns up to the delight of getting merry on wine, talks about the joys of singing and dancing, but is generally acknowledged to be courteous and, of course, brave. We've already heard about his joust à l'outrance with William Douglas, for example. So for those of you who know the jam, this is the David Watts of the English court. And for those of you who don't know the jam, well, really... The only thing that doesn't seem really to go his way is marriage and children. There's so little mention of his wife Isabella that it seems likely this was an arranged marriage rather than any grand passion. And although he has two children, they both die relatively young, though Blanche will marry the king's son John of Gaunt and through this marriage preserve the house of Lancaster. At Lancaster's side is a character at once similar and very different. Walter Manny's name has cropped up a couple of times and could have come up a lot more. He comes from Hainault, like the Queen, and the similarity with Lancaster is that he was a key and ever-present figure in the French wars, brave and much admired by the King. But Manny had none of the subtlety and range of Lancaster. Manny was the archetypical soldier of chivalry. Wherever there was a fight, Manny was to be found laying about him. He was recklessly brave, which led to great victories against the odds, but equally, victories and battles that weren't always relevant. And somehow this reckless bravery endeared him to both sides. He arrived in the war the fourth son of a minor lord, but by the time he died Edward had showered him with gifts, and he was very wealthy indeed, leaving a large endowment for the Charterhouse Monastery in London. But somehow, despite the damage he caused them, the French trusted him as well and he was therefore constantly involved in peace negotiations. I guess you kind of knew where you were with Manny. In the end, he wasn't a brilliant leader, because he was too much in love with war and ransoms to really keep his eye on the main strategy. But he was an ideal lieutenant. So, the plan was to talk about Lancaster's raid of 1345, which transformed the direction of the war. Though unlike Cressy and Poitiers, I'd bet very few are aware of it. The French were aware that Lancaster was coming, but they also thought Edward was coming. William Bahoon had landed with a tiny force in Brittany, and so they were fixated on the north. This weakened their resistance throughout Lancaster's campaign in the southwest. The army that Lancaster brought with him wasn't large, nothing like the big conscript armies of Edward I's reign. He had about 500 men-at-arms, 500 Welsh infantry and a 1,000 archers. So, pretty titchy, you might think, and not much he could do. First thing he did as soon as he arrived in Bordeaux in August 1345 was to transform the strategy of the new Seneschal there, a man called Stafford. Lancaster had no interest in a war of attrition, a war of sieges 
that would at best take a few castles and allow the French to concentrate their meagre and scattered forces. Nope, he was out to cause chaos, destruction, despair and indeed murder. You're going to want to refer to the website here again, by the way, although I'll do my best to describe all the movements. Now, there is some evidence that Lancaster and the Seneschal Stafford didn't get on. And you can imagine why, can't you, from Stafford's point of view. This pretty golden child comes wandering into town, singing his songs and doing his dancing and writing his devotional books, while you're patiently sitting outside some godforsaken castle, and he tells you you've been wasting your time, and to cap it all, he turns out to be right. How irritating would that be? So what Lancaster did was to aim his army, now very much swollen by Gascons, right at the major power bases of the French-held territories to the northeast, the Perigord. Marching night and day, Lancaster took his army swiftly up the Dordogne, aiming for a town of Bergerac. Bergerac was the major French garrison of the southern Perigord. It included a stone bridge over the Dordogne and would therefore be a superb base for further raids into French territories. And at the same time, it was old, defended by an 11th century castle and inadequate town fortifications. By the way, as an aside, something that's not always obvious is that when attacking a town, quite often you had to take two bites at the proverbial cherry. First of all, you had to attack the town, which was great because you might well get to loot everything in there when you took it. But like as not, the garrison would run away to the citadel, the keep, the castle, whatever you want to call it. The politics of taking a town, then, might well include taking the town and having to get on before taking the keep. Quite often the attacking army might leave some troops there in the town to try to finish the job and take the castle. In which case, as you were left there, you were in as much danger from the potentially sullen townsfolk as from the undefeated garrison in the castle. And another point. Without doubt the easiest way to take a castle was to talk them into it. There are numerous examples of the townsfolk surrendering to protect their property and letting an invader into the town. But that again didn't mean the garrison was on board of the plan. The castle might yet remain to be taken. All jolly complicated. And furthermore, before we get to Bergerac, it's worth having a little recap of the rules of war, castle-wise. Apologies, I know we did this in the 12th century, but hey, always worth making sure everybody's clear. So, the key rules were these. Number one. If you surrender, that means you've been able to negotiate terms. So, by and large, you will be able to march any armed men away with full honours and keeping all their kit. And most importantly, the town is officially protected from being looted and all the horrors of a sack. The problem is that if you give up straight away without a fight, your boss is very likely to take a dim view and the castellan of the place might well find himself strung up. Number two, if you do decide to put up a fight, that's fine, you can still negotiate later. The idea often was that the castellan would be able to send a note to his boss, telling him that he was in trouble, and telling him to relieve the place in X number of days, or he'd surrender. If no one arrived and drove the besiegers off, that was it. Surrender with full honours. If the boss did arrive, he'd better have enough men to drive the attackers off, or the deal would be null and void. 
Number three, you get taken by storm. Then all deals are off. There are no rules. You and the townsfolk are, in short, toast. The good folk of Bergerac caught wind far too late about Lancaster's march and they panicked. The setup at Bergerac was a powerful moated barbican at the southern end of a bridge over the river and a rather feeble gatehouse at the north side and then behind the gatehouse the town and castle. The French men-at-arms along the bridge fled into the town along with hordes of villagers and refugees. Lancaster immediately launched an assault Archers shot at the bridge from the banks of the river, causing death and yet more chaos. Lancaster attacked the Barbican at the southern bank, and the French attempted to sortie from the town down the bridge, and the poor refugees were caught between the two and slaughtered. Before you could say Jack Robinson, the English were rushing the gatehouse to the town. A frightened horse got jammed under the portcullis, and the English were into the town. By the end of the day, Bergerac and its castle belonged to the English you will correctly note that the town was taken by storm and therefore was given over to plunder. Lancaster paused for two weeks in Bergerac, sweeping up a number of local castles and garrisons. The surviving French soldiers withdrew to La Riole in the March of Gascony or northwest towards Angoulême, where the Duke of Bourbon was trying to get an army together. Lancaster now divided his army, leaving 1,500 to hold Bergerac under the command of the Lord of Albray, the Gascon faction who had defected to the English side. Taking the rest, now swollen to about 2,000 men-at-arms and 3,000 archers and foot soldiers, he struck for an even bigger prize, the regional capital of Perigueux. By October, Lancaster had established a ring of fortifications around the city. But while he was doing this, the French were at last putting together an effective defence. Jean, the Duke of Normandy, now had a substantial army, 8,000 men-at-arms and a large mass of foot soldiers. So the Duke sent 3,000 men-at-arms and an unspecified number of foot soldiers to relieve Perigueux. Again, we don't quite know how many, but it's pretty clear there are more than Lancaster had available, and enough to force the English to retreat. At last, the English advance had been stopped and Lancaster fell back towards Bordeaux. The Duke of Normandy's local commander, Louis of Poitiers, started normal procedures in these circumstances, mopping up the ring of fortifications surrounding Perigueux, including a castle at a place called Auberoche. There is a story in the Chronicles of Foissard that the commander of Auberoche, Alexander Cormont, tried to get a message to his boss, Lancaster. It was discovered and was fired back into Auberoche on the back of a catapult. It's a nice story, clearly. Lancaster and Manny were in fact already on the way back, with a small army of around 1,200 men, sending hurried messages to the Earl of Pembroke to bring the much larger main body of the army to join them. For several days they waited, hidden from the French in the woods, until at last they decided that Pembroke wasn't going to arrive, and so they hunkered down and decided what to do. Now, given that the French army was probably around 7,000 men strong, this would seem to be a good point at which to run away. But that was not Manny's style. Instead, his advice was to attack while they still had the advantage of surprise. And in true boy's own style, this is exactly what they did. 
Comfortably camped in the meadow outside the castle, the French were suddenly hit by a storm of arrows from archers hidden at the edge of the wood. With no idea that the English were close, the French weren't wearing armour, and the result was a chaos of French men-at-arms either dying or hurriedly getting kitted up, at which point the sound of the massed hooves of galloping English cavalry would have hit them, closely followed by the actual cavalry charge hitting them itself, and utter confusion ensued. As the friends struggled to pull themselves together, the scattered groups of English men-at-arms were attacked and slaughtered piecemeal by archers and English men-at-arms. However, there were a lot more French than English, and despite falling back, headlong flight there was as yet none, and the French were now beginning to hold their own and organise themselves. And at this point, Lancaster's Castellan of Oberoche, Alexandre Cormont, made a sortie from the castle into the rear of the French, and this time it really was over. The French broke, and losing any cohesion, was slaughtered. Numerous nobility were taken for ransom, including a nephew of the Pope. The follow-up to Orberoche was almost as remarkable as the battle itself. Having suffered a major defeat, and with an English army in the field, the Duke of Normandy took the obvious path, and disbanded his army and told them all to go home. Now maybe it was money. Certainly there were many complaints that wages hadn't been paid, but the other explanation is simply that the Duke was as daft as a brush because it meant there was no army in the field to face Lancaster until March 1346. So Lancaster effectively now had a free throw. He went for the town of La Réole, set in a crucial situation on the marches of Gascony and the Agenais. It was powerfully held by the French, but its weakness was its townsfolk. La Réole had once been English, and under English rule had played a much more significant role in the region, and so the townsfolk agreed to let Lancaster in. Unfortunately, they still had the French garrison to deal with, but Lancaster and his friendly townies had a plan. So while Lancaster's men fainted to attack one side of the town, the townies actually let him in on the other. The French garrison sadly rumbled the plan and fled back to the castle, accompanied by a troop of pigs. But help was clearly not at hand, so after an honourable period to allow for help to arrive, which it duly did not, in January 1346 the French garrison surrendered and was allowed to march away with full honours. Lancaster's campaign in 1345 was at marked contrast to the vast majority of efforts so far. Even the victory at Morlaix had led to no great step forward. Alboroche was a bona fide, honest-to-goodness triumph, accompanied by significant territorial gains and a huge dent in French confidence. Now once again the pressure grew on Philip and his son, the Duke of Normandy, to show that the chivalry of France was indeed the flower of Christendom, and would crush the English upstarts. And so next week, outside the small village of Cressy, they will do their very best to do just that. Now, since we've had rather a long break, I have a satisfyingly large number of people to thank for their donations. So Mark, John, Linda, Jason, Michael, Tor, Graham, Greg, Jason, Burnt, Pascal and Datahouse Software, thanks for your support. It's greatly appreciated. And thanks to all of you for listening, so good luck everyone and have a great day.
Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.